Well, welcome everybody to the Brown Rudnick podcast, which is designed to discuss the very latest issues and developments in tech. My name's Stephen James, and I'm a partner at Brown Rudnick, focusing on IP and innovation. We're looking today at contact tracing and health reporting technologies, arguably the most important and timely topic in tech right now. So to set the scene, the UK government is gradually starting to lift lockdown restrictions, which were designed to slow the virus infection rate. Attention has now turned in particular to how technology might be able to help tackle coronavirus and help public health officials detect and isolate cases and prevent a second wave. A big concern is how quickly the virus is spreading and manual tracing of the virus alone might not be enough. But privacy campaigners are concerned at the prospect of governments and big tech companies using mobile phone apps and other platforms to track citizens and gather public health data on a mass scale. Of course, contact tracing technology is nothing new and has already been deployed heavily in countries such as South Korea and Singapore. These countries relied heavily upon manual and digital contact tracing and have been widely praised for their response to the first wave of infections. The UK is currently trialling its own NHS app in the Isle of Wight, which is expected to be released in the whole of the UK later this month. It's hoped that members of the public will be able to use the app to report virus symptoms and request a test. Using low-energy Bluetooth technology, the app will help trace others with whom the users come into contact and advise them to self-isolate or take other measures. In order to allay some privacy concerns, the app does not collect location data and all data collected is anonymous. The app works by exchanging Bluetooth-generated keys or tokens when you're six feet within of another smartphone user for 15 minutes. If a person subsequently develops coronavirus symptoms, they can voluntarily share this information through the app. And all those who had exchanged anonymous keys with that person within the previous couple of weeks will be notified and given advice on what to do next. Now, the UK's approach to its contact tracing app has been criticised by some privacy campaigners as it has adopted a centralised approach which shares the data with government and the NHS for research and planning purposes rather than the decentralised approach espoused by Apple and Google and which is being adopted by most other EU countries, including Germany and Austria. The difference with the decentralised approach is that the matching of the data takes place on a person's device rather than on a central server. The governments argue that the centralised system will help the government and NHS understand how the virus is spreading, creating a social graph that could be vital in understanding patterns of infections and thereby saving lives. Critics have argued that the centralised approach is the first step towards mass surveillance, as government would have access to data identifying anyone with whom you've interacted over an extended period of time. They've also conveyed concerns about security, as the app may require the screen lock on the smartphone to be disabled in order to work. A centralised system can also increase the possibility of hacking, and it's more likely to drain battery life in the phone as the app cannot simply run in the background. This may mean that few people ultimately want to download the app, and it's been said that at least 60% of the population and 80% of smartphone users will need to be using the app to make sure it's effective. That could be a key issue in the over 55s, as the vast majority do not have a smartphone and they are amongst the more vulnerable groups. However, the government's hoping that the pandemic, which has caused over 30,000 deaths in the UK and led to stringent restrictions on daily life across the country, will incentivise us to use the app despite privacy concerns. 
So whilst the technology may provide some solutions to managing a way out of the crisis, there are huge ethical privacy and security issues to consider. Now, I'm delighted to say that we've been joined today by Nick Magliacetti and Jim Rouse of ID Flu to discuss some of these issues. Nick and Jim have created their own platform, which can be used to help employers monitor the health and well-being of their workforces. Now, ID Flu is not designed to compete with the government's NHS app, but it is a health monitoring tool designed to help employers interact with their employees in a safe and secure manner. Nick, Jim and their team have managed to devise, deliver and roll out their solution within a matter of weeks. And it's now being deployed globally by one of the biggest corporations in the world. So, Nick, first of all, uh, welcome to the podcast. Can you please tell um, us all a bit more about ID Flu and how you came up with the idea? Um, we are a technology provider based out of Guernsey. We have built over the last two years a payments platform to facilitate payments to specific demographics out of tax-free jurisdictions, namely Guernsey, where we are based. In order to facilitate these payments, we found that there was a large challenge around the compliance and compliance monitoring aspect of not only the source of funds, but also where the funds were going. In response to that, we created a software business under our banner, which is Motion Ventures, called IDU. And IDU collects monitors and maintains an easy communication flow of financial and identity-based information. Around about the second week of March of this year, with the coronavirus pandemic gaining speed, we repurposed our software to rather than being a financial level and identity level communications tool, but to communicate based on people's health and their sentiment around health. So rather than asking for somebody to send us an up-to-date copy of their ID, or their up-to-date proof of address, it was actually us sending them a set of questions, ask them how they feel, have they travelled recently, where have they travelled to, do they have any of the following symptoms, and that could include a cough, a temperature, a sore throat, etc. And basically, the framework which was uh, originally detailed and is still detailed by uh, the IMO. We, um, we proceeded to test this product across a number of different sectors, and as you said, we uh, we were lucky and we gained our first client, which was a large global FMCG, where they had a specific challenge and they wanted to monitor the health of their employees, more specifically, uh, the health of their employees based in factories in hard to communicate with locations. So if you consider that a normal ID flu Q&A is as basic as you receiving an email which says, how are you feeling? Do you have a temperature? Are you concerned about you potentially being exposed to third parties who might have COVID-19? Or how is your family coping with the situation? Because it's, it's soft as well as hard questions. We were able to repurpose that email format and send it in the form of an SMS to these hard to reach parties because individuals who are based in Africa or in tea plantations in South America, for example, who don't have access to Wi-Fi like the majority of the modern world does, how can you, as a large global FMCG, communicate with these third parties? How can you communicate with them on the ground and, and collect the same data set as you could do with somebody who is on an email or 
in modern day WhatsApps, for example. So we added and bolted on a AI, so an artificial intelligence based chat bot to enable to be able to engage with these individuals and speak to them, asking them exactly the same questions, uh, which we would ask on an email, but on an SMS. Since then, our product has grown and we've moved from SMS to other mediums of communication, whether that be WhatsApp, Line, or even the, the dialing in or the outwards bound dialing so that somebody can call a telephone number and they push one if they feel bad, two if they don't feel bad, three if they have a sore throat, and then start to speak to somebody in an emergency. So the speciality of ID Flu is we started as a financial grade due diligence and compliance monitoring piece of software which was built for the finance of the legal industry. We repurposed it for health and for health-based sentiment analysis uh, to communicate with, with a large population. And we've put that out into the world. The next step for us is that we are now working with this sentiment-driven Q&A to enable companies to get people back to work, which we believe is the next wave of very significant subject that is coming around the corner. For employers to get their employees back to work is what is key. And um, we believe that by going through a set of Q&As, by answering those questions carefully, and by the employees being empowered to deliver a points of trust and, and responses on a daily basis, it will empower the employer to be able to release people back into the workplace, having carried out their duty of care and asked the correct questions. Great. So it, it, it sounds like this is something quite different to a contact tracing app in, in a sense. It's more about reporting and monitoring. So what have your, been your clients' real priorities, both in terms of functionality that they want from the platform and their business aims? As you, as you rightly said, a contact tracing app is responsive. It's responding to a problem having happened where a where an individual has been identified to have been exposed or to be uh, infected and then communicating with the people who he's coming in contact with. The specific deal that we're dealing with is we're being preventative. So we're ensuring that people have carried out the best practice on an individual and on a corporate level prior to be returning to work. Because, answering your question, the key aspect that employers want to achieve is a safe return to work policy for their employees. And in terms of this process of getting people back to work and also tracing the virus, there have been some commentators who said that the role of digital technology has been overstated here and it really has to all be done on a very manual level. Do you agree with that? And how do you think tech is going to enhance the ability for us all to get back to, to work in the manner that we were accustomed? I think there are a bunch of schools of thought, as you said, on a public level, um, there are the larger corporations like the Facebooks, the Googles, the Microsofts of this world who are working on different products for the NHS, for example, where self-declarations on a daily basis by individuals are requested. But as we've sort of seen, the challenge with these products is that the people don't know where their data is going, who it's been housed by and how it's been used. We believe that products such as the one which we've brought to market could offer more utility because it's very specific for the employer. It's a communication between employer and employee. And as we say, the reason why we call it our trust pass is because it's an engagement of trust between the employer and the employee. And, and that's what we believe is, is the powerful thing here. And in terms of making sure that people use this, because you're talking about potentially 
rolling this out to workforces all over the world, not just in developed countries, but also in developing countries, how employers or how is the platform going to help employers make sure they get that user adoption so that people are signing up and using this? How we've seen it is actually employers are putting this into their back to work policies. They're asking their employees to return to work, but having to follow very strict guidelines. Now, those guidelines, for example, we have an insurance company in, the, in, in Malaysia who are sending out pamphlets and documentation and information prior to returning to work. So, you know, procedures, manuals, et cetera, et cetera. But equally, as well as people being informed, there is also the opportunity for the employers to inform themselves that their employees are virus-free, symptom-free, have been healthy and are healthy and they're in, in a healthy home environment as well, just to equally mitigate and to, and, to, and to monitor any potential liability that's coming around the corner. And I was interested to see that with your trust pass, that could effectively act as some sort of health passport in the future. And it's interesting because I think it's perhaps an illustration of how the tech is ahead of even the uh, the healthcare aspect of it, the treatment aspect. Although interestingly, I've, I've noticed that there are some antibody tests that are now becoming available. So are you potentially thinking of a situation where employees can access different parts of uh, their offices, their facilities, et cetera, using this trust pass? How would, how would that work? Yeah, so basically the trust pass itself is the ability to return to work on a sentiment-based level. We have created TrustPass also around the ability to include diagnostic testing from test kits, test centers, and clinics around the world. So should it become the case, which we firmly believe it will, but we think that's probably about two to three months off, where every human being on this earth or anybody who has to return to work will be tested at least once prior to Christmas, that their diagnostic results can be housed somewhere securely encrypted anonymously should it be required and is available for that individual to demonstrate to an employer to a port for example or to anywhere where they where, where they want to gain access great that's very helpful and i'm keen to bring jim in here uh, jim I, you're obviously focusing very much on the security aspects with all healthcare related technologies particularly i think in this field now when you've got employers and employees involved privacy and security is likely to be a central concern for employers so what are the sorts of steps that you've taken to make sure that you're keeping that data secure and you're complying with data protection requirements in terms of transparency, accountability, making sure that you're only taking the minimum amount of data that you need in order to conduct this exercise. How have you approached that with IDflu? Sure. I mean, the answer to that is is probably that really we've just been following the GDPR guidelines on this. It's a case of some of this stuff is down to the individual client and down to their policies and how much data they collect because it's a configurable system. But ultimately, we give them the tool set to comply with their local uh, jurisdiction in terms of data protection. One client, for example, uh, we're just talking about the data protection requirement for the data retention period. So it's uh, quite possible this client will be looking at doing, say, 14 days of data held on the system, and then that will just be scrubbed or anonymized. Similarly, access control within the system. We have a, a, a compliance system whereby we can define multiple levels of access. And we also log the access to who's who's seen what, who's actually been accessing it, who's been interacting, who's been sending out the requests. All of that's logged in a, in a secure audit trail within the system. Um, so it's 
it's really just a case of following um, the general guidelines. And we built all of that into the system from the get-go because, like Nick said, we, we built this around compliance and sensitive data from the start. You know, we started this uh, a couple of years back. Um, it, it was built into the product from the beginning. And to all the points that have been raised about for example, when you are handing over the, this all this personal data, not just in relation to your own platform, but other some of these other technologies, contact tracing apps, etc. Some are concerned that once you've let the genie out of the bottle, it's difficult to put it back in, whether you're talking about a private organisation or government. What's your reaction to that? Do you think there is a danger that's, that some of the data, the personal data that's being collected could be misused? Absolutely, there, there always is. The, the policy we always take is that uh, personal data, any any kind of data, is a toxic asset. It's an approach which usually puts you in good stead for being uh, compliant with these things. In terms of the government collecting data, I think it's a valid concern, certainly with the NHS app and the concerns been raised about that. You do need to be absolutely clear as exactly where your data is going and what it's being used for, because it can you know, be used down the road. Certainly when you look at the UK government using tools like Palantir, which is a a massive metadata analysis tool, which has previously been used very controversially in the United States. Um, they fed a bunch of citizen data into it, including medical data and everything else. And then they started using it for, for rounding up illegal immigrants um, with ICE. And it's it's easy to see why people's fears are sort of coming out around centralized data storage for the government. I think with what we're doing, basing it around the employer and the relationship between the employee and the employer, I think it's a, a much more, even with a large company, it's a more intimate relationship. I think people have probably got more trust giving their health data to their employer than they might necessarily have just giving it to some massive government body with a sort of only a vague description of how they're going to use it. So I, I think we base our approach really around the, the trust between um, employer and employees, as Nick said. And just in terms of contact tracing technologies, healthcare reporting technologies, etc. Obviously, this is a very fast moving field, very fast moving area. Nick, I was wondering, do you think that it's going to be a case that there are going to be a number of specific players in the private sector, and then you're going to have the alongside these national apps, which are focusing more on the contact tracing? How do you think this sector is going to develop over time? I think it's probably going to be simpler. I would hope it's going to be simpler than that which is that a body such as the WHO will release a set of diagnostics which will sort of base testing on and as simple as a positive, a negative, or a, as you said before, with the antibody test, was positive. And I believe that those diagnostic results will be able to be housed within a number of different publicly available platforms, whether that be a Google, a Facebook, or products like ours, which potentially will be adopted by corporates. That's part of my answer. The second part of my answer is that the world has moved so quickly in the last nine weeks. Technology has has caught up so quickly that actually looking at the next nine weeks is incredibly exciting. The other thing that we found is the adoption and the amount that companies have stepped up and moved so quickly. So historical companies like large FFCGs, large corporations who would historically, you know, have their feet stuck in the mud when it comes to the adoption of new technologies. It's very clear what people can do and how fast companies will move when there is a need. And so I think we're seeing this now. People are used to moving fast. And I believe that things are going to develop even faster. 
we just hope to be able to stay on the right side of the curve and that we're there being able to anticipate what the, what the next move is going to be. Thanks. And Jim, do you think that people are going to have to make a choice between sacrificing elements of their privacy and potentially their data being left exposed and vulnerable to attacks and preserve and that that balance and preserving their health or do you think the two can be married in a in a cohesive way i think with the right level of care um by the provider it can be managed properly ultimately it's always a balance um privacy versus you know functionality and and general uh productivity it is going to be a balance we're going to have to strike it's difficult to know what it'll look like um in, in the next couple of months. And I think we're going to see potentially like, like Nick touched on, I think people like the WHO will be looking to put out not necessarily a, a prescriptive saying, yeah, you, you must use this system or that system, but actually that these are the standards you should follow. And this is the procedures you should implement, however you implement them. Uh, and I think that's going to include a lot of guidelines around uh, data protection and, and making sure things are secure. Uh, I think it's a really hard call to make at this point. Stephen, could I possibly ask you a question? John, sure. on, on this. So um, I had a conversation with a, uh, a Californian-based partner of mine um, last night, and one thing that they were talking about is how the US is actually changing law at the moment and changing uh, the way that government is able to deal with stuff the next time this happens, if it's going to happen again and basically removing certain rights of individuals. Um, what's your view on that? And do you think that is going to happen here? It, it's a good question. I think with the US in particular, there are challenges because they don't have a universal data protection framework in the same way that we do in Europe, where everything is effectively harmonized. In the US, it's done state by state. So for example, California's quite further ahead in terms of other states, in terms of protecting privacy here think we have this overarching framework with the gdpr i imagine what will happen both here and in the us rather than amending legislation i think it's more likely that you will see regulators as we have already here with the information commissioner and the european data protection board being more flexible and pragmatic. So with the contact tracing apps, for example, they haven't come out and said that neither are in compliance with data protection legislation. They said that you have to put in certain get safeguards, but if you do that, if you work with us, then we're not going to hammer you for it effectively. So I think that perhaps rather than a relaxing of the rules, and I'm saying this both in terms of the US and here, what I would expect is that the frameworks will be maintained, but they will be encouraging, regulators will encouraging private companies and governments to work with them to make sure that they find that, that harmonious balance. Because And ultimately, that's in the interest of governments and the technology providers, because you want people to use these technologies. And if they adopt it, if they trust it, they will adopt it and want to use the platforms. They'll want to use the apps. So hopefully that way, it, there won't need to be uh, reform, but there will be a sensible pathway where you can marry those two objectives. So I think that's all we have time for on the podcast for today. Uh, Nick, Jim, thank you so much for your time. We hope you found this podcast useful and insightful. Please do look out for more Brown Rudnick podcasts on a variety of different topics, which will be coming your way in the very near future. Music